Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Get your advanced PhD in WOW from Floor and Decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with Floor and Decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and Decor isn't just a couple of aisles. It's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's Floor and Decor. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When it comes to personal finance, most of the advice out there is geared towards goal setting, like saving X amount of dollars for retirement or reduce discretionary spending by a certain percentage each month. And goal setting is helpful, but it often comes up short in giving you a big picture view of your financial situation so you can take appropriate tactical steps to improve your wealth. Well, my guest today on the show argues that in order to get this big picture view of your finances, you need to start looking at your family as a business and yourself as the chief financial officer of Family Inc. His name is Doug McCormick, and he's a professional investor and the author of Family Inc., Using Business Principles to Maximize Your Family's Wealth. And today on the show, Doug and I discuss the two types of assets that you're managing as the CFO of your family and the business principles you can apply in your family's business to help grow them. Now, we also discuss the metrics that corporate CFOs use to term- determine the health of a company and how you can use the same ones to measure your- the health of your family's finances. Lots of great actionable advice in this podcast. After the show is over, make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash family inc for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic doug mccormick welcome to the show hey thanks very much glad to be here so you're a professional investor managing portfolios for institutions as well as for families and you got a new book out called family inc and it's all about treating your personal finances like you would a business right if you but being a chief financial officer uh, before we get into what that means and what that entails let's talk about the way most families manage their their money um how do they manage the money and why is shifting your mindset to you know treating your personal finances like a business uh, a better approach yeah i think um the unfortunate reality is many of us allow um kind of life to manage us and the money is just kind of a byproduct of working really hard and people kind of pick their head up every couple months or every year and kind of check in on their financial progress and and you know the key premise of the book is that um the family or individuals can view themselves as a business. We're essentially all in the business of converting uh, our labor to financial capital. And when you think about it that way, I think it brings a whole new discipline to how people can proactively manage their careers, manage the the really important decisions in life that can help lead someone to financial security. Right. I'm sure there's people out there who they might own a business and they got that thing just you know, tight as a ship, they run it perfectly, but then their personal finances are just like a mess. It's just sort of haphazard. Yeah, no, I, I see that a lot. Um, and I, I think just to, to be clear, what I'm proposing is not that you make all of your personal financial decisions like a business would, but that you use um, that framework 
to inform you about like what the best business decision is. And then you overlay your values and your priorities onto that. And so I make bad financial decisions all the time, but I'd like to think I know it when I'm doing it. Gotcha. That makes sense. All right. So let's talk about this mind shift change of uh, thinking of yourself as a, the chief financial officer of your family business, your family personal finances. Um, so what are the types of businesses that we're managing with our personal finances at the chief, as the chief financial officer of our family? Yep. So, so essentially, you know, the business is one where everybody's born with a certain amount of labor and you can make decisions in life like education and job choices that um, change the value of that labor. And so the name of the game for all of us is really about how do we convert that labor into social security benefits and financial capital such that when it comes time to retire, you've got your those two assets, your social security and your your financial capital to support your consumption uh, throughout the rest of your life. And I think um, it's a pretty powerful framework because it allows people to connect um, all of their disparate decisions in kind of a holistic fashion and kind of gives you a North star, if you will. And, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, what you find is your educational choices or your career choices impact your investment choices, your insurance needs, your retirement choices. And so this really, I think, provides a pretty holistic framework uh, to allow people to identify what's really important and understand the interconnections, if you will, between these different choices. All right. So we're, we got the labor asset and then the capital asset. Yep. And then I think essentially uh, Social Security is is a, a, a mandatory purchase of an annuity. Uh, and so I think that is becomes a very valuable asset for folks as they get close to retirement as well. Okay. All right. So um, CFOs of corporations, they have objectives or goals, big picture goals of what they're trying to do. I mean, what are the three main objectives of the CFO, the family, a family? So you talked about, I guess one is converting labor assets, your work into capital assets, which is like retirement. Um, what are some of the other objectives? Yeah. I mean, I think you can kind of break it down into to, um, three, and this is somewhat of, a, of almost a time horizon. I think the CFO focuses on the immediate term, and that is to ensure that he has the cash available to fund today's consumption and avoiding financial distress today, uh, kind of ensuring that your family has the basic needs. I think the second element is kind of the long-term planning. How do you begin to invest today and prepare um, your assets to support your retirement needs? And that's a, a many-year process. And then I think the third uh, major area that a CFO focuses on or should focus on is succession planning. And I think this is candidly the one that is, is most, um, you know, kind of underserved. And that's really about teaching the next generation, the skills and the values to be good stewards of the family assets um, when one generation passes. Okay. That's great. So we'll get into these uh, more specifically here in a bit. Uh, let's talk about net worth, right? Cause that's something everyone knows they should be tracking in their personal finances. But how should a, a CFO of Family Inc. measure their net worth differently than how most people go about measuring their personal net worth? Yep. So, so just uh, for everybody's benefit, first of all, net worth is simply um, something that you can determine when you look at your balance sheet. And the balance sheet uh, lists all of your assets on one side and all of your liabilities on the other side. And what's left over, um, assets minus liabilities, is your net worth, essentially your savings. Um, and you see, you see a balance sheet in many business applications. It's also very relevant in a personal finance environment. I, I think the difference in terms of the way I look at it or a family CFO should look at it is 
Um, there, you shouldn't just look at your financial assets when you look at your net worth. You should also take a bigger picture to think about the lifetime labor value that you have and the expected social security value that you have. And when you add those assets, um, you know, it, it really kind of results in some very interesting insights. For example, uh, in many cases, you are most wealthiest uh, when you're young. Now that you may not have a lot of financial assets, but you certainly have a lot of labor assets that are available uh, to be converted into capital over time. And so I think that holistic um, view is an important starting point as you think about um, the real drivers of wealth, key investment opportunities, things like asset allocation. Right. So yeah, the reason why you have you have higher uh, net worth, just to clarify, is because you're young, you have time to you know, I guess, capitalize on your, your labor asset. Exactly. So, so just to, you know, give people a little more perspective into how I think about those values, you know, your lifetime labor value is simply how old am I today? How old am I when I retire? What can I expect to earn over that interim period on an after-tax basis? And it's essentially the sum of that. And, um, you know, what we can say for sure is you're going to be wrong when you make that estimate. But I think it's a really important thought process because it forces people to think about the long game. We're not focused on compensation today. We're focused on maximizing lifetime compensation. And I think it's a better way to think about um, you know, good investments in career and education and acknowledging that you have that significant asset on the balance sheet. All right. So this idea of thinking of your job as an asset is, I mean, when I read that, I was like, wow, that's, I never thought of it that way. Um, but in the world of business, labor is an asset. Like they, they have that on the balance sheets. You know, we've talked, we kind of hit on a little bit of how viewing your labor as an asset can change how people approach their career. But if labor is an asset, you can invest in assets. What are some of the ways people can in, invest in their labor asset to get the most out of it? And I think, you know, just to highlight the, the big aha moment that I'd like people to think about is when you start looking at your labor as an asset, you begin not to think about this year, what am I going to make this year, but you begin to think about the goal is to maximize the lifetime labor value. And there's a couple ways you can do that. Um, you do it by obviously earning more per year. You do it because you've got a skill set that is more employable, and so you're less likely to have periods of unemployment. And the last is um, you can do it by extending your career. And so if you um, are fortunate enough to have a skill set that is not manual labor, in many cases you can work later into your years uh, because you're selling your intellectual capital. So there's, there's lots of different ways to maximize that value of your labor asset. Um, so some specifics are obviously education. Um, and it's not only the amount of education, it's the type of education. There's very clear statistics that um, would suggest that people that focus on business or, you know, kind of STEM-related fields, science and technology, earn substantially more than those that focus on liberal arts. Um, and it's the kind of professional choices you make in terms of what industries you pursue, what functional areas within a career you pursue, and things like uh, geography, you know, the, the employment picture and the compensation is very different in Silicon Valley than it is, uh, you know, kind of the Midwest. And so, uh, you know, your geographic preference and choice um, impacts your your lifetime labor value. And then I think the last one, which is perhaps one of the very most powerful, is entrepreneurship. Uh, I'm a big fan of entrepreneurship as a way to dramatically increase um, the value of your labor asset. 
Okay. Well, let's talk about education, right? Because a lot of our listeners are young guys or they're uh, parents with kids about to go to college. Um, education is an investment in your labor asset, but it's an investment you make using debt, right? It's debt funded, take out student mm-hmm. loans. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the, the zeitgeist, culture zeitgeist, saying that college simply isn't worth it anymore. You know, looking at this as a CFO, what's your argument that education debt is still a good investment? Yeah. So, so first of all, I would, let me say a couple things. First, I, I, I believe that the benefits of education may be decreasing relative to, um, you know, history. And that's a product of the cost of education is going up. And candidly, in many cases, um, you know, wage uh, or compensation levels are not going up commensurately. So if you, people made the argument that an education is a worse investment today than it was 10 years ago, I think there's uh, some merit to that. But when you think about, is an education still a good investment? I think the answer is a resounding yes. Um, when you think about a couple things, the first is um, you're not thinking about the return on that investment over a year or five years. You're thinking about it over a lifetime. The second is it assumes that um, the student is making good choices in terms of what kind of career they intend to pursue and what kind of curriculum. So I don't think you can universally say that education is a good investment. I think education in skill sets that are in demand in the economy and that you intend to use is a very good investment. Um, And then I think there's a real uh, key element to not just the skills that you learn in college, but the skills that you must learn to maximize that value. And essentially, that's about selling your labor in the marketplace. And I think um, in many cases, uh, we're not doing a good job of teaching our young people, whether they be in high school or college, about how to navigate these major decisions. Arguably, um, an educational investment is is certainly one of the very biggest investments that a person will make over a lifetime. And if it's not the biggest, it's probably the most impactful. And I think giving people the tools to evaluate you know, not only what they have aptitudes for and what their passions are for, but what the economic consequences of those decisions are, I think is a real key element of that, um, you know, kind of thought process. Right. So yeah, again, it's, people have to look at the long-term view on this to see the benefits of an education. It's not going to, you know, it might not happen the first 10 years of your career. It'll come 30, 40 years into your career. Yeah. And, and that is, you know, in today's environment, um, you know, millennials, are likely to have 10 different jobs. You know, job mobility is substantially higher um, than it used to be, and they're likely to work substantially longer um, than previous generations. So, you know, I think you know, the good news is in a mobile environment, there's lots of opportunity to be compensated for those skills you've developed, and you've got a lot longer period um, to recoup your investment, if you will. Gotcha. All right. So continue on this idea of, of treating your labor as an asset, you know, people insure valuable assets like their home or car. Um, If labor is an asset, it's an incredibly valuable one, right? I mean, this is going to fund your capital into retirement and fund uh, consumption while you're still, uh, you know, young. Uh, How can we insure our labor asset? Yeah. So, so I think um, two things, first of all, um, the, the, probably the most neglected insurance of most individuals is disability insurance. And, you know, from a financial perspective, this is almost the worst outcome possible because not only have you lost your potential to earn if you have a significant disability event, uh, but you also still have all the costs of, uh, required consumption. So, you know, I think, um, 
insurance item number one that's most important is disability insurance uh, in the unfortunate circumstance that you get injured and are not able to earn an income. And, and people dramatically underestimate this risk. If you look at statistics, you know, something like uh, north of 20% of Americans will experience a period of disability um, over a career. Uh, I think the second element of insuring this big asset is life insurance. Uh, and a couple things there. Life insurance is most relevant once you've established a family and they're depending on that income. Uh, and I generally recommend that um, if folks are considering life insurance, they do so on a term basis. That's generally the cheapest um, and ensures the exact need you're looking for, which is you uh, end up dying prematurely and your family loses access to that labor asset. Gotcha. And is disability insurance expensive or is it pretty relatively inexpensive? Um, well, you know, I'd say it this way. It, it's um, probably inexpensive relative to the risk. Uh, and there are ways to minimize the cost. And so my whole approach to insurance is I think it's generally a loser's game, meaning the expected return is going to be less than the cost to procure it. But you've insured a, a significant risk that's like a going out of business risk. Um, so it's still a prudent investment. Um, and you can do things around disability insurance in terms of delaying um, how long you have to be unemployed before you begin to collect your benefit. So, for example, um, if you get injured the first 30 days, you don't collect anything. It's only an injury um, that exists in excess of 30 days. And that would be a cheaper policy than one that starts to pay out immediately. Okay. And another um, insurance method you talk about in the book is, you know, self-insurance, just having a, a safety net, right? A, 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 what's it called? An emergency fund for those instances where maybe you might be out of a job for a few months because you got laid off. Yep. Yeah. So uh, two things. First of all, I think um, one of the highest financial priorities um, for anyone is establishing that rainy day fund, uh, whether it be that you experience um, you know, a car accident, um, a required repair at your house or unemployment to, to be able to ensure that you can um, not experience financial distress. So that is one form of insurance. Um, it's also possible that at some point you acquire enough wealth that you don't need disability insurance or you don't need life insurance. Um, the problem is most people, very few people in our economy um, achieve that level of wealth because that's a significant asset. And so, um, while that's a good investment, if you have enough capital or enough wealth, that's not available to most folks, or it's not prudent for most folks. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. 
All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out, where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I've wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast growing trees right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants and listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code manliness offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss, a lot of useful information in there, talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Okay. So let's shift over to our, this other business asset that we're managing, our capital, which is there to fund uh, retirement after we've depleted our labor asset. Um, so let's say, what's the best investment strategy, say for a young person who's just starting out in life to ensure that their retirement fund can cover the time they're not working? So, so I think the first thing that folks should think about taking advantage of is uh, company-sponsored retirement programs like a 401k. 
Um, these are really important for a couple reasons. The first is they're tax deferred. So essentially what that means is you're not paying tax on the income. It goes directly into your retirement account. And that's significant. It's essentially like if you're have an effective tax rate of 25%, it's essentially like 25 cents on every dollar you invest. That is free money working for you in your retirement account. The second thing is many companies offer some kind of matching program. Um, so for every dollar you put in, they put in another 10 cents. And so I recommend to folks that you should be maxing out on those retirement accounts. The combination of tax deferral uh, combined with the matching program ends up being very significant. Um, the second thing is you got to start early. Um, wealth is really created by compounding. You know, it's not the 2% or the 5% this year. It's the 5% over 30 or 40 years that really drives wealth um, and that accumulation of assets. And, you know, the last thing I would say about this element of, of the Family Inc. is um, these retirement assets are something that have a very long duration. And what I mean by that is if you're 25 or 30, you're not going to retire until you're 65 or 67. And then those assets are going to, you know, be used by you until you're 85 or, or plus. And so you've got a great long-term time horizon. And if you have that kind of time horizon, you can afford year in and year out volatility, the market's up 10%, the market's down 20% uh, because you're invested for the long term. So my recommendation is that folks um, take significant equity exposure in these kind of retirement accounts. Okay. And you also recommend uh, a passive investment strategy for the, the Yeah. Layman. I think the, the goal here is to maximize after tax, after inflation, after fee returns. And when you look at it that way versus just nominal returns, um, generally, uh, it's very hard to beat passive investing. There's less tax leakage, there's less fees and inflation you're going to experience regardless of your investment strategy. Okay. Um, how should someone who's getting close to retirement, how should their strategy towards retirement change? Well, um, so, so as you approach retirement, essentially you are losing one significant asset and that's your, your labor asset. Uh, and so I think you have to essentially acknowledge that you've got less degrees of freedom. You've got a little bit less um, opportunity to assume risk. Fortunately, um, for most of us, we'll have a Social Security um, program. So that is a significant asset that will compensate us. Uh, but I think the key elements of um, you know, approaching this part of, of the Family Inc. life cycle are continue to stay um, reasonably invested in equities, your time duration is relatively long. And by the time you're ready to retire, you have significant visibility on things like how much wealth you have, um, what your health is, and you can begin to think about things like additional annuities or uh, additional insurances for healthcare liabilities. And so, you know, I really, at, at the time of retirement, you've, you've kind of got a lot of um, unknowns that you've begun to answer. And it allows you to make a much more informed decision about your asset allocation. Let's talk about going that the insuring your retirement asset, your capital asset. Uh, you, you mentioned annuities as a way. Can you um, talk you know, a little deeper into that topic? Yeah. So it's essentially, um, an annuity is simply a contract, and basically, it's where I today give um, the insurance company a lump sum of money, and in return, they give me a, an annual 
payment uh, for as long as I live. And there's all kinds of variations. It can be indexed to inflation. That payment can be something that happens for you and your wife or just you. And so you can really structure it, um, commensurate with your unique needs. Um, and so I find that annuities are relevant for folks who have not saved a lot and don't have a lot of room for error. Um, and it helps ensure that you don't run out of money because uh, one of the big risks that we all face is we don't know how long we're going to live. And you know, from a financial perspective, living long actually creates greater financial needs. Um, so it's you know it's, it's a great thing uh, personally, but from um, a achieving financial um, independence. The longer you live, obviously, the more you've got to save, and the annuity can be a valuable tool to help bridge that gap as as um, you you take risk on how long you're likely to live. The problem with annuities is I view them as very expensive, um, and so in general, if you think about what the return on an annuity is, it's low single digits. Uh, I think you're likely to experience a better return in the equity markets. Um, but the equity markets also come with substantially more risk. Okay. And at what point in someone's life should they might consider annuities? I mean, this is something as late as, yeah, yeah. As late as life as possible, because, uh, I think the purchase decision becomes a lot more informed when you have a better sense of the balance sheet, you have a better sense of your retirement benefits, you have a better sense of your health and how long you're likely to live. Okay, great. So CFOs in a business use a variety of tools and metrics to measure the health of their business. Uh, what sorts of metrics should a family CFO look at? Yeah. You know, so, so if we, if we go back to the analogy that, you know, every family is a business, I think many of the financial tools that CFOs use in a business context can be applied to the family. So obviously the two most significant would be an income statement, which is essentially the same thing as a budget. It simply lists how much you bring in minus all your expenses for the year and in a budget context, what's left over is called savings and an income statement that's called profits. It's really the same thing. Um, and then a balance sheet. And as we talked about before, a balance sheet um, simply um, lists all the assets minus all the liabilities and what left over, what's left over is your savings or your net worth. Um, you know, I see a lot of people spend a lot of time um, creating very detailed budgets. And I'm not a big fan of this because what I find is people spend a lot of time tracking it and not a lot of time um, taking action to improve it. So I think a high-level income statement and a high-level balance sheet uh, tell me all I need to know. So in a given period, call it every quarter, if you looked at your income statement, you can determine how much you saved. And if you compare those two balance sheets, you can determine how much your net worth um, or your wealth has grown. And in my mind, those, those are kind of the big uh, indicators of progress. Uh, just one more thing on this topic. Um, you know, I do have a website. It's called familyinc.com, and I actually provide a bunch of tools that allow someone to build their own income statement, build their own balance sheet, and then provide some analytics around what that should tell you. Awesome. Yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes for sure. Um, so Great. Let's talk about the this third objective you mentioned earlier of a fam- of a CFO is planning for succession, right? Businesses have succession plans in the event the CEO or the CFO steps down. What sort of succession plan should a family Inc. CFO have in place? Yeah. So first of all, let me say I think this is um, one of the most challenging areas of creating multi generational, you know, kind of financial security. Um, and I don't know if it's because people just have a hard time thinking about, um, you know, kind of their own, their own death, or it's 
a product of delicate conversations, but I find this to be um, very often neglected. You know, I think there are really three um, you know, different levels of financial preparedness as it becomes to succession planning. You know, the first, and a lot of people get this one right, is you know, it's the emergency stuff. Uh, you know, what financial advisors does someone need to call when uh, a family member's passed away to figure out where everything's located? Um, you know, who helps them figure out uh, what is available in the estate? The second one, which I see, um, you know, kind of less success with, is clearly a clear communication of the intent. And so that addresses things like how does the deceased want their estate disposed of? How do they want their inheritance distributed? And these are often really tough discussions, but my view is, you know, wouldn't it be better to make this very clear when you can talk to folks about it and ensure they understand your rationale as opposed to having family members fight about it or argue about it or never really know, you know, what, what the intent was. I've seen a lot of, you know, kind of hurt feelings and strained relationships because people have failed on the second level of preparedness. And then lastly, the third one, which I think is, is probably the most important but the hardest to achieve, it's really the ability to impart skills and values into the next generation so that they can be uh, you know, good stewards of, of the family. And so you know, I see in many cases families work an entire lifetime to accumulate wealth. They turn it over to the next generation, and that next generation has not been prepared with the right skills. And so this is not only you know, the skills to manage money, but it's imparting the values that are consistent with the way, you know, you manage the money. Uh, and my only advice on this one is it takes a long time. Uh, it's a product of a lot of failure. And so the best uh, way to prepare is to start that conversation early with your kids and use real life opportunities as, as examples to allow them to learn and allow them to fail in controlled environments. Because I think we all have had many um, experiences where we failed with managing, um, you know, money. And I think there's, you know, valuable learning that occurs when you do that, especially in a controlled environment where it doesn't cost you too much. Right. Yeah. My wife and I just finished our estate planning. Um, I've been putting it off for such a long time, but now that I have it done, it feels great. There's that comfort that if I were to go, like things would still transition smoothly. Yeah. And the reality is that the unfortunate thing about the estate plan is the minute you do it and finish it, it's probably out of date. But, you know, you've probably got a 95% solution today, and in the next three years, it'll still be an 80% solution. And so it does require revisiting as your circumstances change, but you've certainly, you know, made it well down the path of laying out broad strokes of how, how you think things need to, to happen. Right. Well, let's talk about this. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening there. They got baby boomer parents who are, you know, getting up there, they're retiring, they're getting close to, and you don't want to think about like my parents are about to die, but that's, you know, it's on your mind as they get older. How do you bring up this conversation about your person, your parents' personal finances, right? Like, you know, is mom and dad going to have enough to support themselves in retirement? Because you, you read all these statistics where baby boomers like don't really have that much in savings in terms of, in terms of uh, retirement. Um, so how do you have those conversations with your parents? I mean, it could be kind of touchy. Yeah, so I think they are touchy for starters. So I don't have any good recommendations on how to avoid uh, the sensitivity, and I think every relationship is different. I think two two things that I have seen as important elements to a, a constructive conversation here. You know, the first is um, opportunity for two way learning, and I think you know younger generations can go to older generations and say, "Hey, I'm trying to understand your financial situation because." 
I'm trying to understand my own. You've had a lot more experience at it. You've had a lot more, you know, kind of real world um, decisions to make. And so I would like to learn from you. And conversely, I think in many cases, you know, younger generation is realizing this is an increasingly important life skill and can bring to bear what they've learned. So I think if you can structure this conversation in the context of how do we all learn from one another, I think that's very valuable. Uh, I think the second is, um, and this one is, is, can be challenging, but this is a conversation that's best done outside of traditional family roles. And so, you know, when I'm talking to my father, for example, uh, I, I try not to be coming at it, you know, in a father son, uh, context, but more as, you know, two adults who are trying to think about a complicated issue and make sure that we're making the most, the, the best of our circumstances. Um, and, and so I, you know, that, that's a, a hard one, but I think the key is try to get outside of your traditional communication patterns. Okay. That's great advice. Um, so Doug, let's, let's say we've talked, we've hit on some really great ideas here, but let's say there's someone listening to the show right now whose finances are you know a mess. You know, the value of their labor asset isn't where they want it to be. They don't have positive cash flow. The retirement asset is zilch. I mean, what's some things that people can start doing today uh, to get going on the right path? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is, um, you know, focus on today first, you know, a lot of us have tremendous anxiety about, am I going to safely retire? You know, can I accumulate enough wealth that I'll feel secure? And that's obviously a great long-term goal, but you never get there if you experience financial distress today. You know, one of the most significant obstacles to overcome is something like financial distress where you're forced to declare bankruptcy. And so if you find yourself, you know, kind of in that point where you're really struggling, um, you know, be clear on what the priority is. The priority is avoiding financial distress today. Uh, and in some cases that, that creates some tough uh, decisions. Uh, you know, you mentioned someone that has negative cash flow. I mean, I think if you have negative cash flow, somehow you've got to stop the burn rate. And generally the first and fastest way to do that is uh, take a hard look at your expenses and figure out how to reduce anything that is, um, you know, kind of not absolutely mandatory. Once you normalize your cash flow such, such that you're not digging a, a bigger hole for yourself, I think that's when you can begin to think about how you begin to accumulate wealth. You know, as we, as we talked about earlier, by far and away for most families, your largest asset is your labor. And so it's beginning to think about how you deploy that labor in a more effective way. And that's not just about working hard. It's about working smarter. And it's not just about, you know, your compensation, like what you made this week or this month but it's about what skills you're developing, what relationships you're establishing that are going to allow you to grow that income over time. Great. That was some great advice. Well, Doug, this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about your book and your work? Well, well, first of all, thanks very much for having me. Um, you know, so I've got a, a website, familyinc.com, um, and you can see the tools there and a little bit more about the philosophy of the book. Uh, and it's obviously um, available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Awesome. Doug McCormick, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Hey, appreciate it. Have a great one. My guest today was Doug McCormick. He's the author of the book, Family Inc. It's available on amazon.com. You can also find out more information about his book at familyinc.com. And make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash familyinc, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show and have gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us out a lot. As always, I thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.